Presbyterian Church, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 12. You can find that on page 349 in your pew Bible. I'm going to give you a disclaimer quite early on, actually now. A couple weeks back, not so long ago, actually a couple days back, uh, Pastor Phillips asked me, sent me a text message, and he said, hey, can you preach for me on Sunday night, the 25th? I've got to go to Charleston for my granddaughter's baptism. How could I say no? Of course, absolutely. I'd be honored to, until I looked at the text. And if you have your bulletin, you can see there that the scripture this evening is Joshua chapters 12 to 19. The joke is on me. <laughs> now, don't worry, I'm not going to read all of those chapters, uh, but we'd be here literally all night, and I cannot pronounce half of the names that are in there. But well, here's what I do want us to do tonight, okay? What I want us to do is I want to highlight several passages within these chapters. So in an effort to give you a clear picture of what's going on, I'm going to invite you to actually keep your Bibles open and to follow along with me because I'm going to hit different verses here and there, and that's my encouragement to you in order to keep up uh, with what is going on in these passages tonight. Now, if you recall, last week, Pastor, Pastor Barrett preached on Joshua chapter 11, and this is where those stories, uh, in those stories, the conquest of the land of Canaan comes to a close. And oftentimes, scholars break down Joshua into, into three major sections. Right, so three major parts of Joshua. One to 12, which recounts the conquering of the promised land. Then you have 13 to 22, which is the distribution of the land. And then you have 23 and 24, which recounts living in the promised land. So tonight, I'm going to briefly touch on chapter 12 and then spend the majority of our time in 13 through 19. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would meet with us tonight, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds, that you would show us uh, how, what an amazing and awesome God that you are. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite fiction authors is John Grisham. And if you're not familiar with John Grisham, John Grisham is uh, he's, an, he's a novelist, but he's also an attorney who writes legal thrillers. And I absolutely love his writings. And, and possibly that's because at some point I was really wrestling with whether or not to go to seminary or law school. And nevertheless, I've, just, I've fallen in love with, with John Grisham novels. And at some point this summer, I was rereading one of his books called Sycamore Row. Now, in Sycamore Row, the main character of the story is an attorney by the name of Jake Brigance. Maybe that name sounds familiar to you. Uh, he's in several of Grisham's novels, uh, most popularly played by Matthew McConaughey in A Time to Kill. Well, in Sycamore Row, Jake has been hired to represent a hotly contested will, right? The last will and testament of a gentleman in Ford County, Mississippi. And so it requires him to spend a good bit of time over in the county courthouse looking at old land records. 
And this is what the narrator writes. He, being brigands, could always find something to do across the street in the courthouse. The land records were on the second floor, in a long, wide room with lined shelves of thick plaque books dating back 200 years. In his younger days, when totally bored or hiding from Lucian, his boss, he spent hours poring over old deeds and grants as if some big deal was in the works. Now, though, at the age of 35 and with 10 years under his belt, he avoided the room when possible. He fancied himself a trial lawyer, not a title checker, a courtroom brawler, not some timid little lawyer content to live in the archives and push papers around the desk. Even so, and regardless of his dreams, there were times each year when Jake, along with every other lawyer in town, found it necessary to get lost for an hour or so in the county's records. Well, tonight we're going to get lost in the county land records, so to speak. For anyone who's read through the Bible before, you know it contains some sections that if we're honest, they're, they're pretty tedious to make through, right? Some mundane information at times. Long lists of genealogies. Long lists of laws. And as the case with our section tonight, long lists and sections of cities and borders and boundaries that are used to divide up the promised land. And if I sat down with most of you, and if you were honest, in your Bible reading, we possibly skim those quite quickly or flip the pages to the next section. And yet, we believe that Scripture is inerrant and it's infallible. Not just some of it, but all Scripture. And so while it may not on the surface be the most interesting, it's still quite important. And to understand, we have to ask the question, why? Why was this included in the canon of Scripture? What is the significance of this section, specifically to the original audience? And the answer to that is actually it would have been enormously significant to the original audience. Because what seems like a lot of boring details and records and uh, dealing with the land and things of that nature is actually the Israelites' inheritance. This is, this, is more, this is talking about their property, their inheritance. It's marking the boundaries of their homes and their cities. No doubt borders are important. Perhaps you heard about how earlier this summer the Belgian farmer who, while plowing his field, accidentally moved a stone, which happened to be to mark the border of the France and Belgium border. And so he actually moved, he made Belgium bigger and France smaller for a season of time. And it was, it was a good humored story if you read it and you saw it, but it shows the importance of borders and, and shows the importance of uh, boundaries and properties. But more than just property, this is the fulfillment of God's promises. From Genesis chapter 12, where God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. God has been faithful to fulfill his promises. And so tonight we're going to start in chapter 12, and I will quickly summarize these chapters and verses, and then at the tail end give us three principles that we can gather 
as modern readers from this section of Scripture. So first chapter 12. As I noted earlier, this concludes a larger section that begins in chapter 1, the conquest of the land of Canaan, 1 through 12. And here the author of Joshua recounts the 31 kings that the people of Israel had conquered under Joshua and Moses' leadership. He just writes out their names. And while more is told about their stories in other places, it's a summary of their victories. In fact, it's what John Calvin calls a living picture of the goodness of God, showing that the performance of the covenant with Abraham had been complete. It's a victory recounting the details of all these victories that they had over these kings. And so that's chapter 12, moving to chapter 13. It kicks off a new section where we begin to divide off the land, where Joshua begins to divide off the land. And it starts in verse 1. It says, When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You're very old now, and there are still very large areas of the land to be taken over. This is the land that remains. And then he lists the different regions. And if you go to verse 6, As for all the inhabitants of the mountain regions, from Lebanon to Misereth, Mame, that is, all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the Israelites. Be sure to allocate this land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have instructed you, and divide it as an inheritance among the nine tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Now, if you are sitting, you're, maybe you don't do math, maybe you're not a math scholar, but nine and a half is not twelve, so you're going, where... Did the other tribes go? Well, if you pull up that slide somewhere over here, uh, you can see how the land is divided up. And there's a couple things that I think is worth noting. Uh, a, Joshua's old, late 80s, 90s, and God says it's not done yet. We've come a long way, but we're not quite finished. And I promise to go before you again. I will drive them out. As I have done, so I will continue to do. God will deliver the victory. And so he says, divide them among the nine and a half tribes. Well, if you recall, back in Numbers 32, Moses had given the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, their land east of the Jordan. So the Jordan's in the middle. You can see those three tribes to your right. Uh, Joseph had no inheritance, as if you remember. His sons, Ephraim, and Manasseh were given his blessings. He says those two and a half tribes were able to take possession of their land prior to Israel crossing the Jordan. So Moses looked at them and he said, great, you can take it as long as you promise to fight. As long as you promise not to just get really comfortable and settle down. And they do it. They fight and they move forward. And so they inherit the land early on. They are obedient to God's work. You can take that slide down now. The second in verse 13, there's a phrase that says, Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites and the Machites, but Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. I told you, these words, these names are tough. I have practiced them, and I'm still stumbling. But did you catch that? They did not drive them out. Now, we're going to see this statement multiple times throughout these chapters in Joshua. And it's a statement, what I call the phrase of failure, where it notes how Israel failed. They failed to obey God's word. They failed to drive out 
the inhabitants. And it's a, there's a more exhaustive list of this in Judges chapter 1. And then in Judges chapter 2, we learn the consequences of their failure. You see, in Judges 2, we find out that letting the, those people stay, failing to drive them out, will be a thorn in Israel's side. And that the foreign gods are going to be their downfall and ensnare them. All right, so we're moving to chapter 14 now. Marks the beginning of where the land west of the Jordan is divided. Right, this goes through the end of chapter 19. So 14 to 19, we're dividing it up. And it's, it's interesting to note that right here at the beginning of 14, we have this beautiful story of Caleb. Where Caleb comes to Joshua and Caleb says, I've walked with God. I'm a man of faith. Give me my share of the land. He says in verse 12, Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there and that their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord, with, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. And so a beautiful picture of Caleb, who has remained faithful to God, who is remembering God's faithfulness to him. So much so that as an old man, he's willing to take on the same Anakites who the 12 spies saw and were terrified of. The large people, the giants, as they were called. And he drives them out faithfully. Again, it's interesting that the story of Caleb starts the division of the land west of the Jordan. It's, it kicks off with Caleb's story. And it ends with Joshua receiving his part of the inheritance. And so Caleb and Joshua bookend the dividing up of all the land west of the Jordan. So 15, we move on to chapter 15. The tribe of Judah receives their inheritance. The boundary lines are drawn. We're told what cities and what towns they're going to take. And then we see again the phrase of failure creep back in in the last verse of 15. Then moving on to 16, they discuss again the boundary lines for the tribe of Ephraim and the other half of Manasseh. And again, we see this phrase of failure creeping in in verse 10, chapter 16. Chapter 17 continues the division of the land to Manasseh. And verses 3 through 6 is an interesting story of how one of Manasseh's grandsons only had daughters. And this story is recounted in Numbers 27, where the Lord commands Moses to give the daughters their portion of the land. And here it actually happens. Here these daughters come, and they come to Joshua, and they remind him of God's word to Moses. They are clinging to God's word. You see, this is not Moses' rule. God had ruled on this, and now they come. And what could be perceived as kind of haughty. Who do you think you are demanding? They're not demanding of Joshua. They're demanding of God. But it's what God had said. And God was ready and does make good on his word and his promises. And then, so we see that story there. And then again, the phrase of failure. And then in seventeen fourteen to 18, there's this interesting story that happens again with Ephraim and Manasseh. They come to Joshua with a complaint, essentially, that the land that they've been given is just not big enough. 
And they, they're, they're maintaining that our numbers are just too great. And this land is no, nowhere near the right size. And if you look at 17, verses 16 to 18, so the people, uh, but, so, but before that, Joshua tells them, he comes to them, he goes, look, take the hill up here. Just go cut down the trees. It's work, but take it. It's yours. Go and take it. And this is how they respond. The people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Sheen and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not only have one allotment, but the hill country shall yours be, be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. And you realize that what starts as a complaint that our land is not big enough is not a frustration about the size of the land, but turns out they are afraid. They are afraid of the enemy. They are doubting God's ability to conquer. And so Joshua gently reminds them again of God's ability to conquer their enemies. And then we get to chapter 18, where the tent is moved at Shiloh, and all of Israel gathers there. And we see this note in verse 2 that there remains, 18.2, there remains among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. In verse 3, Joshua says, so, says to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? It's an ongoing issue. How long will you continue to not follow through? The land, he says, is yours. It's been given to you. Make it your own. Take it. Subdue it. Cultivate it. And so Joshua sends out scouts from every tribe to go and get a report, and they come back in, and they give the report, and they divide up the land as Joshua has commanded, as God has commanded, actually. And at the conclusion of 19, once the work of the dividing of the land has been accomplished. Joshua finally receives his portion of the land. Now, there is no way to cover all of this, but I hope that gives you an idea of what's been going on in these chapters and why its significance. Thus concludes my summary of 12 to 19 is what I'm trying to say. And so here's what I want us to do, though, for the remainder of our time is briefly look three biblical principles that I think are found in this section and why they're significant. And the first is this, is that God's promises are always sure. God's promises are always sure. Throughout the book of Joshua, we have seen in these passages God making good on his promise to deliver the land to his people. As I mentioned earlier, it's a promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, and now it's coming full circle. Josh, God promised to deliver, and he does. God promised to fight for his people, and he does. God promises to give them the land, and he does. God is now dividing up the land as he sees fit. God promised his people an inheritance, and his promises are sure. While there's a sense that the land is certainly the focus of the book, 
there's a bigger focal point on the giver of the land. These passages show us that Israel's true inheritance is Yahweh himself, is God himself. And so it is with us. Friends, for those of us who are followers of Christ, Jesus is our true inheritance. He calls us to himself. He delivers us from sin. He has given us the task to walk with him and to make disciples and given us a future hope, a future promised land where we will dwell with him forever. That's why we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And he is my portion forever. We, like Israel, cling to that promise that says, God is not a man, from Numbers 23. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And yet how quickly we fail to take God at his word. How quickly we fail to believe his promises. It is so easy, isn't it, to forget, especially with the difficulties of life. We find ourselves riddled with conflict in our families, in our finances, in our health, in our relationships, in our careers, in our friends, how easy it is to become cold and cynical and hard-hearted and ambivalent. And yet, the promises of God made to Israel are just as sure today as they were when they were spoken to Israel. What are the promises of God that you need to hear tonight? That you're not alone? I'll never leave you or forsake you, Jesus says. That he'll never cast you out? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus says. That you have a great high priest who lives, whose joy is to make intercession for you, who right now is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. And that is his joy, that you have a great high priest who understands your circumstances and who is begging, longing, wants to extend grace and mercy and help in our time of need. We could go on and on and on about these promises, but the promises of God are sure. Thanks be to God for examples like Joshua and Caleb and the daughters who take God at his word and cling to his promises. So that's the first. The second point is this. God's provision, God's provision is never mundane. See, while borders and boundaries may seem boring to us, if we pause long enough to think about it, it really is quite astounding, isn't it? Think about your day today. Perhaps nothing earth-shattering happened. I, I, I pray that that is the case for you. You got up, you ate breakfast. You got everyone out the door. Right? You came to worship this morning. You drove to worship. You went home. 
You ate lunch, maybe you took a nap. You're back here this evening, pretty standard Sunday, right? And yet, in the standard day, how often do we stop to think about God's provision? That you have a home, and food, and a car, and a place to worship freely, and rest, and children. Thanks be to God. If you've ever traveled to a developing country, you understand the benefit of those things in life. My former church, when we were in Thomasville, Georgia, when my children were younger, they would show up for morning worship. Uh, and they were excited to see people, and they would come up and give you a hug, and, hey, you know, good to see you. And there was always one gentleman who every Sunday, without fail, would come up to me, and he would just look at me, and he would shake his head, and he goes, man, you are so blessed. You are so blessed. And I'm going to be honest with you. It's a Sunday morning. I've got 48 things on my mind, right? And blessed is not one of them right there in that moment. Uh, but over the years, it actually has had a pretty powerful impact on me. Hey, you are so blessed. You know, truth be told, if I'm honest, my inclination is, is to never be satisfied. Is to always want more, something better. Actually, truth be told, it causes rifts in my relationships. Because the struggle is real. Either, yes, holy discontentment is real, but so is unholy discontentment. And it's toxic. And it's passages like this that remind us of God's provision for his people. Brothers and sisters, friends, look at your lives. I am by no means... I don't, I, don't, I don't want to minimize anybody's pain. I don't want to minimize difficulties. There's room to mourn, and there's room to weep. But at the same time, what a humbling reminder of God's provision. It should give us a reason to pause. It should give us a reason to praise God. Are you bored with God's provision? I encourage you to take a moment and set apart some time at the close of each day to thank God for the day, to thank God for how he has blessed you. That's the second. And the third one is this. God's people are called to action. One of the main aspects of this chunk of Scripture is that the conquering is complete. The backbone of the Canaanites has been broken, and yet there's still work to be done. Clear the forest. Face the fears of the chariots and the horses. And while it's really easy for us to look and judge the Israelites for their lack of faith and their spiritual laziness, that's easy to do. After all, look what God had done for them. He took them out of Israel. He conquered all these cities. Look at what he's done. How in the world could you still doubt? Take that land. Go get it. Get on with it. And yet, while we may be quick to judge Israel, how often do our journeys in faith start very similarly? We start with a great zeal and we putter out. Perhaps you've felt it before. You go 
on a men's retreat or a women's retreat. Students, you go to the edge or to the beach retreat, whatever it is. You have a spiritual high, right? And you're on fire for Jesus. And yet, like a sparkler on the 4th of July, you burn out, you fizzle out. And what was once hot is no longer present. It's easy to become complacent. It's easy to settle, to grow content. Dare I say spiritually lazy. Small sins all of a sudden seem to be insignificant. And yet, what a reminder, there's nothing insignificant about sin. And by God's grace, our sins have been forgiven. And through the work of Christ, salvation has been given to us. And yet, as God's people, we're called to action. We're called to make disciples, to share the good news of Jesus with the the world. We're called to sanctification, to pursue holiness. Sanctification being a lifelong work of becoming more and more like Jesus. An ongoing work of Christ in our hearts. Contentment is easy. It's tempting. Sanctification is work. It's clearing the forest. But it is a worthy endeavor. And on this side of heaven, we are called to pursue. What forest needs clearing in your heart and in your life? What area of spiritual laziness could be present? Where do you need the Holy Spirit to work, to move, to ignite and inflame in your life, to move you back towards what the action that God has called you to do? Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, all of your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your provision. And we thank you that we are a people who are called to arm in arm, pursue the actions that you have laid before us. Bless us, we pray. Open our hearts. Give us the courage and the passion to run the race that you have set before us, to pursue you. In Christ's name, amen.